Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is Episode 21, The Diagnostic Utility of the Angiotensin-Converting Enzyme in Sarcoidosis, a Population-Based Study. Basically, we're talking about the ACE level in sarcoid. It was published in Long in 2016 by Patampong et al. So this is a fun paper. It's basically one of those, the best job you could probably do with the worst study design. And I think those are fun to talk about. It's also a useful topic because this comes up a lot in clinical practice. For background, sarcoidosis is a tough one. There are certainly cases where you feel very confident. Patients present with higher lymphadenopathy, you get a biopsy, it shows up with non-casein and granulomas, and maybe sent an ACE level and that makes you feel really extra good about it. That's kind of the rarity in my experience. A lot of the time, you have a patient who has a number of non-specific findings. Say they had granulomas in their liver, or they have a weird rash, and every time they biopsy it, it's nonspecific, and they also have hyaluronic lymphadenopathy. Or my personal favorite, they have some weird inflammatory lesion in their CNS, and the ACE level is elevated. Unfortunately, this paper is not going to solve that conundrum. So what is the ACE level? ACE level is a membrane-bound protein. It's strongly expressed in endothelial cells, in particular capillary endothelial cells, and especially in the lung. This is important because we think it's made in these granulomas that you get in sarcoidosis. Now, this first came out over 40 years ago. They found that there were elevated LACE levels in patients who had sarcoidosis and got really excited. They looked a little deeper and they saw that almost three quarters had elevated ACE levels. Sounds like a pretty good test. But as you'll see soon, diagnostic tests often look great when you first analyze them, but then when you really march it out and calculate the kind of values that you need to actually decide how they perform in clinical practice, they tend to underdeliver. I think the first inkling that this would be a problem is when we look at the other things that are associated with an elevated ACE level. To name a few, asbestosis, coccidiomycosis, Gaucher's disease, Hodgkin's lymphoma, hyperthyroidism, lung cancer, silicosis, tuberculosis, and my favorite, diabetes. This is on one of those great up-to-date tables that just lists a bunch of junk with no perspective on how common it is in any of them. I think it's useful, though, to have the framework in the back of your mind that ACE levels are elevated in a lot of different things. So with this in mind, these authors set out to do something very helpful, which is not just to tell us how often we see ACE levels in sarcoidosis, but to tell us how often they see it in sarcoidosis and in healthy controls and use those numbers to calculate a sensitivity and a specificity. So let's talk about the methods. This study was done in Olmstead County, Minnesota. If you don't already know, Olmstead County, Minnesota is where the Mayo Clinic is. This has got to be the most studied group of people on earth. I swear, like 10% of clinical medicine comes from Olmstead County in Minnesota. But thankfully, the Mayo doctors are really good at what they do. They have a very impressive medical record system that goes back for something like five decades, and it's all linked to all the hospitals in the area, so they can actually say with some certainty, this many people had an ACE level detected, this many people had sarcoidosis, which is really hard to do in other institutions. The other thing is that Mayo Laboratories runs pretty much all the ACE levels for Minnesota and I'm sure many other places. They run a lot of tests for us as well. And so they could also say, look, these are all the ACE levels that we've had tested over time. That's what they did. So the cohort began in January of 1984 and lasted all the way up to December of 2013. That is a lot of years. The inclusion criteria are interesting. So you could get into study in two main ways. The first was that you had a physician diagnosis of sarcoidosis, which was supported by the presence of non-caseating granuloma 
without evidence of acid fast bacilli, I think fungi, things like that, radiographic features of intrathoracic sarcoidosis, and compatible clinical presentation, they said, without other known granulomatous disease. It's pretty solid. Give me a biopsy, radiologic features, and a compatible clinical presentation. I'll call that sarcoidosis any day. They did give one exception for stage 1 disease, where you had radiographic evidence of symmetric bilateral hyaluronic lymphadenopathy. That's pretty fair. Now, the other way you got into this study was to have an ACE level sent and to not have sarcoidosis. So the first thing they did is they looked back at all patients who had an ACE level recorded. Now, that's not everybody. People who denied research authorization at the time of the, of the study, people who were not residents of Olmstead County, Minnesota, which it may was a lot. They have a lot of people fly in. And patients who were less than 18 were excluded. They then categorized the ACE levels as high or low, low or normal according to their lab's reference ranges. Wish I could say there's a whole lot more to it, but that's about it. They just looked back to see everyone who had sarcoidosis and everyone who had an ACE level sent and either had or didn't have sarcoidosis. And that's really all the numbers you need. They found a total of 3,277 patients who had had an ACE level recorded. That is pretty impressive. They also found 295 patients who were diagnosed with sarcoidosis. You can already start to see the problem here. If you have 3,000 of these sent and only 300 of them come back positive, you're going to struggle. Of the patients who were diagnosed with sarcoidosis, 251 actually had an ACE level sent. That's problem number two. Those other patients who we have decided have sarcoidosis didn't have the ACE level sent. So that's going to affect our ability to calculate sensitivities and specificities. What do we know about these patients? Well, the mean age was around 50 years. The people in the control group tended to be a little bit older. There was a female predominance in the control group. Now was statistically significant, 58% versus 42%. The case group was roughly evenly matched. And as you'd expect for Olmstead County, Minnesota, this group was very Caucasian. 80% were Caucasian. The next largest number was 9% who were unknown. ACE results were low to normal in 90% and high in 305, or 10%. In the case group, ACE levels were low to normal in 59% and high in 41%. So that's kind of encouraging, but we'll get to the actual numbers here. So for starters, if you think about a spectrum of how we analyze data, the first is an odds ratio. How strong was the association between a high ACE level and an increased likelihood of having sarcoidosis? In this case, the odds ratio is 6.31. It's not bad. It was statistically significant. So that tells you that patients who had sarcoidosis were 6.31 times more likely to have a high ACE level than controls. At face value, that sounds good, but you can't really apply that to clinical practice. What if 0.001% of patients with sarcoidosis had an elevated ACE level? A six-fold increase would be 0.006%. It's completely meaningless. So we need to calculate a couple more values. To do that, we look at the sensitivity and the specificity. So the sensitivity is the true positives divided by the true positives plus the false negatives. That gives you the true positive rate if you think about that. The specificity is the true negatives divided by the false positives plus the true negatives. Again, that's the true negative rate. Because of this, sensitivity tends to be helpful in ruling out diseases, while specificity tends to be helpful in ruling in diseases. Now, the interesting thing about sensitivity and specificity is that they are features of the test itself. The sensitivity does not change based on the cohort or the prevalence of disease, but its utility does. 
if you have a low prevalence with a high specificity, it's still probably not a very good test. More importantly, and I see people get this wrong all the time, you can't apply one without the other. If you have a really high specificity but a low sensitivity, it's still not going to be a great test for ruling in disease. That takes us to the next step, which is how do you apply sensitivity and specificity to clinical medicine? You can't say, well, the specificity is 90%, that's a good test, let's count it. What you have to do is calculate what's called a likelihood ratio. So the positive likelihood ratio is the probability of a positive result in a diseased patient divided by the probability of a positive result in a non-diseased patient. So the true positive rate over the false positive rate. A lot of fancy math, but it's basically the sensitivity over the one minus the specificity. And thankfully, because they told us both those numbers, we can calculate the positive likelihood ratio of an ACE level. Now the authors didn't do this, but the math's simple, and I'll just tell you, the positive likelihood ratio is 4.1. That's not terrible. It's not great either. We'll go through a couple of examples to discuss what that means. The negative likelihood ratio is somewhat similar. It's 1 minus the sensitivity divided by the specificity. In this case, that winds up being 0.54. That is not a good negative likelihood ratio. So already I can tell you that this is not going to be a good test for ruling out disease. Now you don't need to take our word for it. We can actually calculate this for some hypothetical examples. There's some handy online calculators you can just Google. Type pretest odds, post-test odds, likelihood ratios, and they'll give you a little calculator. You can go through the whole thing. So let's start with a situation where we don't think our patient has sarcoidosis. With a negative likelihood ratio of 0.54, if they test negative, they go from, say, 10% down to 6%. It's really not a big difference. 10%, 6% chance. If they test positive, though, they go from 10% to 31%. That's still probably not enough for you to say the patient has sarcoidosis. But is it enough for you to maybe consider further testing? I think so. Now, what if we really think the patient has sarcoidosis? Say we think there's a 90% chance that they have sarcoidosis already. We're just doing this to feel extra good about it. Well, if it's negative, they go from a 90% chance to an 83% chance. It basically doesn't move the needle whatsoever. If they test positive, they go from a 90% chance to a 97% chance. So I guess it makes you feel even stronger. Perhaps if you were in a case where you thought the patient had sarcoidosis, really didn't want to do a biopsy, and felt like you wanted to feel just a little bit more sure, an ACE level can get you there. Now because of the way the math works, positive and negative likelihood ratios are most impactful when you have an even pretest probability. So let's say we think it's even money, 50% chance the patient has sarcoidosis. With a negative likelihood ratio of 0.54, the post-test odds for a negative ACE level is 0.35. Like I said, that negative likelihood ratio isn't going to move the needle very much. I'm not sure what the difference between 0.5 and 0.35 is, or 50% chance and 35% chance. However, if you had a 50% pretest probability and you apply that 4.1 positive likelihood ratio, you wind up at an 80% post-test probability. That's actually pretty good. If I'm at 80% sure that my patient has sarcoidosis, that would tell me that I at least need to do further workup, perhaps a biopsy, and in the right clinical scenario, you may even want to treat empirically. I hope that exercise was helpful. It's easier on paper, but it's something you can do with any test like this, and the results can be somewhat surprising. I'm actually going to differ from the author's conclusion because of this exercise. They said that the ACE level demonstrated a poor sensitivity and an insufficient specificity. They essentially said it's not something we should be sending. 
They didn't go through this whole exercise, but they did say that it might have a limited role in supporting a diagnosis of sarcoidosis if the pretest probability was high and the patient physician preferred to avoid more invasive testing. We kind of figured that out ourselves. I would argue that the most useful time for this is when you're at 50% and you want to see if you need to get that invasive biopsy. If you think it's even money and you're really hesitant to do a biopsy, if you get a positive ACE level, you go up to 80-some percent. And I think at that point, you have to do it. That being said, time for some caveats. So for starters, like I said before, 50% of patients who were diagnosed with sarcoidosis never had an ACE level sent. That's problematic. You can imagine there's some bias in that, where the people who were really sure have sarcoidosis, we don't send an ACE level. It's going to throw all our numbers off because it's going to falsely make the ACE level look like a poorer performer than it actually is. So maybe it's actually even better than this paper says. Problem number two is that this patient population was white. We know that there's a high prevalence of sarcoidosis in patients who are not white, and perhaps had this population more accurately reflected the demographics of our country, we would have had a different outcome. This was also focused on the lung. I can't emphasize that enough. I got consults all the time for sarcoidosis, possibly of the liver, possibly the CNS, ACE level looks high. We just don't know how to interpret this test in that scenario. Maybe it's better. I doubt it. We think that from a pathophysiologic perspective, the lung is where this ACE level would come from the most. But this study and no real good studies tell us about those cases. And I just do not think we should be sending it in those. They also couldn't assess ACE inhibitors, which could theoretically affect the test. They couldn't assess cutoff values. Unfortunately, they changed their assay over time. So they couldn't say this was the right point for you to say that this is elevated or not elevated. They just did this high or low thing. And then finally, they didn't check about tracking disease activity. So it's kind of a blunt instrument study if you think about it. They looked at the population, they looked at people who probably had sarcoidosis, and they just said, did it work? It'd be nice to have had some nuance. That being said, I think these people did a great job of trying to address a really challenging topic. Studies like this are always inherently flawed. But at some point, you can't be nihilistic. You have to say, this is what we know, and we're going to try and practice with it. I think there's a prevailing wisdom in medicine right now that ACE levels are completely useless. I think that's a stretch too far. Based on the exercise we just did here, I think that if you're at a middle or a high pretest probability of sarcoidosis, a positive value will change your management. I don't think ACE levels are useful for ruling out sarcoidosis, and I don't think we should be sending them in cases that aren't pulmonary when we have low pretest probabilities and are trying to rule things out. It's only going to confuse things. So I hope that was helpful. I had a lot of fun with it. Be sure to tune in next week when we come back to talk about another vasculitis paper. I'll be discussing ustekinumab for giant cell arteritis. Thanks again, and have a great week. 